0: Single Christians don't expect our married brothers and sisters to know what we're struggling with. We actually have to be vulnerable with them and and share that so that they can know how to love us well.
1: Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to today's episode of Christ and Culture. I'm Ken Keithley. Today we'll talk with author Danny Week about the meaning of singleness, and after that we'll have another edition of On My Bookshelf. But first, it's time for our segment called Headlines, in which we look at some aspect of the headlines, like news, sports, pop culture, or business, all from a Christian perspective. And in today's edition of Headlines, let's talk about the news. I'm Nathaniel Williams, the editor and content manager here at the Center for Faith and Culture. And in recent weeks, some key figures have passed away, including Henry Kissinger, former Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, and Rosalind Carter, the wife of former President Jimmy Carter. The two of them were married for 77 years. Dr. Keefley, politics aside, what can we learn from these people? Well, the first thing we learn is that our people are living longer than they used to. You know, on average, it's remarkable. Sandra Day O'Connor of the three, she's the one who was the youngest at age 93 when she passed away. Uh, Rosalind Carter was 98, Henry Kissinger was 100. And so it shows that the the life expectancy has uh, changed dramatically over the last 75 to 100 years in the United States. It is requiring us to think differently about what it means to be retired, how long one might have after he or she reaches the age of retirement, and therefore we ought to think seriously about how we can serve the Lord even after we start drawing Social Security. Uh, Second, all three of them lived in profoundly influential ways. Rosalind Carter was uh, the first lady of the United States. Uh, Henry Kissinger, people forget Back in the 1970s, he was at one time the most popular person in America. Here is someone who actually uh, managed to both win the Nobel Peace Prize and be accused of being a war criminal. He was profoundly influential in the ending of the Vietnam War, uh, during the Watergate scandal, the opening up of China to capitalism and the uh, business with the West, There are just so many things that Henry Kissinger played a profound role. He was asked if he felt like he lived a morally dubious life. And he pushed back and he said that he operated from a set of moral values that were very firm and strong. But he had to make decisions about things about which there was a great deal of ambiguity. And I think that uh, that's an important thing to remember. Even for all three of them, There, I would have to say there are things, decisions that they made and positions that they held that I didn't exactly agree with. But the one thing that I can say about all three of them is that they did have a set, a code, a, a moral order that they followed. And in those times when uh, the right choice was ambiguous, they made the choice to to the best of their knowledge. And, and I think that that centeredness, that, that set of moral values comes through in the fact, like you said, President and Mrs. Carter were married for 77 years and they modeled what a good marriage should look like. And I think that that's something that we should uh, celebrate and commend. So all three of them were profoundly important in American culture. Thank you for that, Dr. Keith Lee. And before we get to our Christ and Culture Conversation, one reminder go ahead and subscribe to the podcast. Give it a five star rating and a brief review. Go ahead and share the episode with a friend. It goes a long, long way to helping us spread the Christ and Culture podcast. And now, on to our Christ and Culture Conversation with Danny Truweek. Southeastern understands that you have a strategic and valuable role to play in getting the gospel to your neighbors and the nations. That's why we offer over 40 degrees at the undergraduate, graduate, and doctoral levels to equip you to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. Visit sebts.edu to learn more. What is the meaning of of singleness. Well, today we have an author who has written about this very subject. We have Danny Truweek with us.
2: Danny is a Christian theological researcher, author, and speaker whose ministry focus lies in resourcing Christian individuals and communities on biblical singleness, sexuality, theological retrieval, worldview formation, and other related topics. She is the author of The Meaning of Singleness Retrieving an Eschatological Vision for the Contemporary Church. She is also the director of the Single Minded Ministry, and their vision is to see God's purposes for singleness so wonderfully expressed in the body of Christ that married and single Christians glorify Jesus with one voice. Welcome, Danny. Thanks so much for having me here, guys. I really um, appreciate it.
1: So, Danny, how did you become interested in a theology of singleness?
0: Well, I'm single, so I'm I'm never married myself, and so actually thinking about God's perspective on singleness has been important to me through my life. Um, so there's a, a personal reason there as well, uh, but also I spent about six and a half years working in a church, largely amongst women, many of whom were single as well, whether they were never married like me, or widowed or divorced. And I just, as I spent time discipling them, listening to them, praying with them, reading God's word with them, I, I I realized how much they were longing for something, some substantial theological understanding of what it was for them to not be married in the contemporary church. Uh, and so that's kind of how the wheels started clicking over for me, recognizing there was actually a missing link here um, that people, single Christians, men and women were were craving. Uh, and I thought it would be really interesting to do some some heavy-duty thinking on this from Scripture.
1: So your book is called A A Retrieval Project, Mm. and I think that when we look at church history, single men and women played such a significant role Mm. in the history of the church, and yet I think that since the Reformation, especially among Protestants, and maybe especially among evangelicals, singleness has not been seen as a Mm. positive thing. So when you Call your book a retrieval project. What does that mean, and why do you want to look at singleness in church history?
0: Yeah, so my book actually came out of my PhD dissertation, Uh, and so I spent—most people who do a PhD start, and they have no idea what they're doing, which was the case for me. I sort of spent 18 months reading a lot, writing a lot, trying to work out what I was doing, and I realized fairly early on to that that actually looking into church history was probably going to be an important aspect of my research. And what I discovered about 18 months in was that I was doing theological retrieval without knowing I was... I didn't even know what theological retrieval was, in a sense. Um, my One of my supervisors, uh, PhD supervisors, said to me, oh, what you're doing is theological retrieval. And I said, oh, what's that? Tell me more. Yeah. Um, so it was quite an instinctive thing. As someone who's always loved history, I'm a, a history girl, so I've always enjoyed history. Um, but what I realized I was doing was actually looking back to the past, particularly the Christian past, the history of the church, to actually understand how our our spiritual ancestors were grappling with the same questions we were grappling with in very different contexts, mm-hmm. but using the same source material, scripture. Um, you know, to to understand what it meant to be married, what it meant to be unmarried, and then. The complexity with theological retrieval is you don't just kind of go back to 400, you know, AD and go, oh, here's what the early church fathers were saying. Pluck it out, move it over and dump it into the 21st century church.
1: They were wonderful thinkers, but... We just don't accept everything wholesale. That's
0: right. Yeah, you have to apply discernment. They're not scripture. They're trying to interpret and understand and apply scripture in the same way we are. And they were living and doing that in a very different context to us in lots of ways too. And so theological retrieval is about finding the really important kernels of truth, theological, pastoral, spiritual, relational truth, and understanding how that can actually inform our thinking um, biblically, theologically, relationally today uh, in our own contru- cultural context and, and sort of making – it's a translation exercise in many ways and working out what parts you do draw on and which parts you go, oh, that was a bit weird and wacky. I'm i am not quite sure that they got that bit right. Um, or those bits that are a bit weird and wacky, allowing that to challenge our weird and wacky assumptions that we don't see as weird and wacky because we're so immersed in our context.
1: Well, we have a saying, you know, you try to eat the fish and spit out the bones. Mm -hmm. What does that look like uh, as we're talking about singleness throughout church history? Mm -hmm. Uh, Think of some of the more interesting favorite examples in church history that you can think of or perhaps a uh, a favorite story you might have.
0: One of the most challenging things that I I hadn't, well, maybe I'd learned it years ago and had conveniently forgotten it. I'm not quite sure. But when I went back to the early church, particularly before... Augustine, and really, well, even he was part of this in his early career. Most early church fathers had an understanding of marriage and sex in marriage as what we would call a post-lapsarian reality, you know, that, that it actually is, it was God's concession to a fall in humanity, marriage and procreation through marriage. And it was only later that Augustine went, oh, no, I actually think it's pre-lapsarian. Uh, you know, God instituted this at the time of creation. For us in you know twenty first century evangelicals, the idea that marriage and sex might have been a post lapsarian reality just seems completely foreign, and I think rightly so. I think Augustine eventually got it right um, but that even as we reject, you know we throw out those bones, actually no, we think marriage was a good created gift from God at the time of creation, actually understanding some of what was behind their thinking, which was a longing to return to a state of perfection, a state of holiness. You know, they look to the garden and go, oh, gosh, that was so beautiful. And we've lost that, Mm -hmm. that longing. And unfortunately, in their eyes, it was kind of a return. They wanted to return to the garden rather than head towards the new Jerusalem, the new Mm -hmm. creation, um, the city. But even as we kind of yeah throw out those bones, we can actually still see and be challenged, I think by their eschatological vision, by their longing to recognise that this world is not their home, um, that there's something better that we as Christians hope for and, and long and look towards. So that was, that was a, an interesting one. I also found myself very randomly um, spending a number of months reading the writings of um, a, a, a medieval monk which I had never heard of before. His name was Aelfric of Ainisham. And I can't even remember how I came across him. Uh, But again, there were lots of bones to kind of pick through and and discard. Uh, But some very interesting insights coming out of that as well, which I hadn't anticipated.
2: So as you're thinking about all these stories from church history and the conversations that they've had, and then um, talking with people in the church today as you're speaking or discipling women, what are some pieces of the discussion about singleness that are encouraging to you? And what are some places that are still like we need to improve some of the hard Mm. pieces? Well, let me start at the end of the question first, the hard pieces. Um,
0: I spent the first, yeah, almost year of my of my research reading every book I could find on singleness, listening to every podcast I could. Actually, thankfully, there weren't too many podcasts back then because I think I never would have gotten out of podcast land. There's so many of them today. But, you know, listening to conference talks, everything I could to try and understand the landscape of evangelical singleness here and now in the mm-hmm. Western church, Um And it was, I must admit, it was a pretty depressing endeavour by the end of it. it, I had sort of a giant mind map of um, all sorts of fairly depressing themes coming about. the way that we see singleness um, as Christians today as a kind of deficient life, an unfulfilled life, a spiritually immature life, a life where um, you can't find genuine, authentic belonging or value. Uh, And... I really was using, drawing on a lot of contemporary resources for that. It wasn't sort of, you know, 50, 60 years ago. It was was now uh, that people were saying this. Um, And that was, that I think really, as hard as that eight, nine months were, it gave me the impetus to really move forward with this because it helped me to see, actually, I just don't think that this is how God's word speaks of singleness. How have we gotten to this point, which is, this is our picture of it, And that's what that sent me back to church history. So the landscape, I think, is still um, not a particularly positive one, but... I'm a pessimist by nature, so it means a lot when I say that I'm actually fairly optimistic about where the conversation is going.
1: Well, good. Yeah, I
0: I think there's a bit of a, I picture it almost like a a wave that's sort of coming into shore. I don't know how big this wave is. I don't know how far out it is. I don't know how much of a whitewash there's going to be when it lands. But we seem to be having conversations about singleness, about sexuality, about family in the church that I'm not sure we've had for quite a few decades, even perhaps centuries. Um, Mm -hmm. There's a possibility that there may be too much of an overcorrection in some ways. Uh, There's a possibility that the wave might be stopped quite suddenly by people who are are fearful of what what that conversation might be. But I'm encouraged because I I just I'm so glad we're talking about this again.
1: Well, I'm interested that you use the word overcorrection because that does seem to be the trait of the church throughout its history you know, the emphasis in the early church, particularly uh, the, the medieval period, it wasn't just singleness. It was to be a hermit or yeah. the monastic life. I've been to Meteora uh, in Greece where the convent is on one mountain or the, the monastery is on another mountain. And they'd have cliffs in which hermits live six, 800 feet in the air to, to live a life of not just singleness, but isolation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I can almost hear someone who is living today saying, "I'm not isolated. I am neck deep in this in this current culture." What word would you have for me? What is the Lord saying to a single person in the 21st century who who really who who, who understands the call to live in the world? What does that look like?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, just Going back to your comment then about sort of, you know, the ancient monasteries, I, I read an article very recently, a couple of months ago, that was advocating for a reinvention of celibacy, that monastic life mm-hmm. in the church today. But they kind of drew upon this history and said, look at all these people in monasteries who were out there serving the church. And I thought, no, they no. weren't. They no. were living in <laughs> caves. They no, were isolated mm-hmm. from the community around them. Um, and they, they kind of created their own, you know, in individual community. And that's not, you know, if we're going to draw on this language of celibacy, which I think is, is difficult in, in those kind of ways, what we have to recognise is that the single life is not in any way called to be an isolated life. It's not called to be an individual life. It's actually called to be life in community. Mm. Just as marriage is, the temptation for married people and families is to kind of withdraw and create their own community rather than be plugged into the world around them, Mm -hmm. but also their church family, too. And so I actually feel utterly convinced that the church needs single Christians just as much as it needs married Christians to understand who we are as the body of Christ. And I think there can be a temptation for single Christians in particular to think, all right, the benefit of singleness is it leaves me to do whatever I want on my own terms in a fully independent life. Mm -hmm. That's not the vision we see in scripture. But we also need to challenge uh, our view of marriage as kind of this way that allows me to set up and do life just with these people without actually being integrated into our broader community and witnessing Christ um, to the community around us and to our church family.
2: That's a good word. Well, how can pastors and married couples in the church be more aware of the things that singles need in the church? Like, what do we need to know? Mm. Dr. Keithley's one of the pastors at his church um, and serves in different capacities, I'm married. How can we serve single Christians in a better way?
0: Thank you for asking that question. Even just asking that question, serve single Christians. Actually knowing that their married brothers and sisters in the church, their pastors, their elders, are actually wanting to know how to better serve them, I think is just such an encouragement to single Christians. Um, I, I don't know what the statistics are in America. Um, I can talk for Minister. Well, I can tell you in oh, America. Great. Yes,
1: uh, f- over it's now reached fifty percent of all adults in America are single. Mm. Uh, this could be uh, because w- women outlive their husbands, so there's a significant number of single elderly women. But also today, people are getting married later and later yeah. are not at all. Mm. And so the number is 50% mm. of all Americans mm. are single.
0: Which I assume probably includes de facto relationships as well, does it? I'm not sure. Yeah. It's, it, this is a problem with the language and the statistics mm-hmm. because they don't necessarily give you a really clear idea of exactly what the demographics look like in our community. And then you've got the question of the churches. So in Australia... I was really, really quite surprised to find that in in churches across Australia, and this crosses Catholic and Protestant, actually, and it crosses denominations and it crosses the whole country, 33% of any given church congregation were unmarried.
2: Mm-hmm. That That's sounds a about right. A third
0: of the people sitting in our pew are not married. Mm. And then even amongst the other 66%, not, you know, maybe, I'm, I don't know what the stats are here, but not all of them, are young parents with children. There will be a lot of empty nesters. You know, there's such variation in our churches, and yet it it seems that so often we think of church as kind of the place where families come, as a kind of association of families, when at least a third of our church members are not that. So one of the first things I would encourage pastors and married people sitting in the pews to do is to look around in your church and see who is there actually recognise who the members of your church are, what their situation and state of life is. Don't make assumptions, don't make generalisations, but just recognise the diversity within the body of Christ and then take steps back and think, okay, well, how is this diversity being reflected in what we say from up the front? What illustrations are being used in sermons? What language... You know, one of my classic examples is um, back home in Australia... I think it's a case here too, often children will start in the church gathering and then they'll depart to go to their own program at some point. And there is a very significant difference between saying, okay, kids, head off and as you do, wave goodbye to the mums and dads versus wave goodbye to the grown-ups. You know, just really little things like that, that for married people may not even register. The unmarried person sitting there is like, oh, okay, well, don't I'm, I'm, don't wave goodbye to me. I, I'm not one of the mums and dads. Um... Who 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 do you sit next to in church? Do married couples always sit next to each other? Do families kind of just huddle in a, in a little bunch? Or are you actually recognising how do we invite people to sit with us? How do we go and sit with other people who are sitting alone? Um, you know, in, in the, the COVID years back, um, you know, it feels like a long time ago. It wasn't. But back in 2020, yeah, 2020 in Australia after we had our first wave and churches started meeting again, I had to sit by myself in church for about six months with the pew in front of me empty, the pew behind me empty and no one. It was such an isolating experience. But that's actually the reality for a lot of single people who come to church week by week. They sit by themselves Mm -hmm. um, and people don't notice that they're sitting by themselves. So there's all those practical things. And then, of course, there is the theological issue. What do you actually believe about singleness? What is your theology of singleness and marriage? What is undergirding the teaching? And is that actually uh, really coming from a faithful understanding of Scripture? How much is it informed by our cultural, social influences? Um, how, What kind of challenging questions are we asking each other of what we actually think about these things and how it aligns with God's Word? Nanny, it
1: sounds like you know what it's like to feel like the fifth wheel mm. at a church. Uh, and I've had more than one single person uh, say to me they just felt like they were, you know, an appendix. Yeah. Um, what word of advice or encouragement would you have to single Christians who are struggling to connect mm. with a local church? Because mm. we know that as, you, as I hear you talking about connecting with community, what word of advice would you have to them on persevering or how to go about it.
0: Mm. I think that's a key word. I think we have to persevere. Um, That can be hard to hear if you're feeling isolated, if you're feeling lonely, if you're feeling overlooked. It can be hard to hear, keep going. And it can be even harder to hear, don't just keep going, but go harder. Actually keep putting yourself out there. Keep investing, even as you may not feel that you're getting it back. But the alternative is what? What? The alternative is withdraw,
1: which which is a, is a is a downward spiral.
0: That's exactly right. And so, you know, we are the body of Christ together. Most of my research is is kind of based around this idea that in eternity, none of us will be married to each other. We will be brothers and sisters. That is mm-hmm. our everlasting relationship with each other in the the interior life of the body of Christ is as brothers and sisters in Christ. So you don't give up on your brother and sister. You don't kind of go, oh, well, they're not responding and so I'm just going to withdraw. We keep laying ourselves out there, even as it's really hard to do. But that doesn't mean that you actually don't have hard conversations at times. You know, letting people know what you're trying to do and that that's actually really difficult for you. Letting them know how they can respond, how they can be proactive, um, how they can actually love you. Don't expect people to be mind readers. Single Christians don't expect our married brothers and sisters to know what we're struggling with. We actually have to be vulnerable with them and and share that so that they can know how to love us well.
1: So, Danny, how can people find more about your work online? Uh, How can they participate in your work?
0: Um, so I am on, um, are we still allowed to call it Twitter? I can't bring myself to call it X anyway, <laughs> call it Twitter. Excellent. I'm on Twitter Danny Tr- at Danny Trill at Danny week. Um, I, uh, often sort of engage with ideas there, but I have a, um, a substack, what what us old people used to call a blog, um, uh, <laughs> which you can find um, if you go to my website, danieltraweek.com, you'll find a link to that there. But I'd also love to direct people towards Single-Minded, the ministry that I um uh, direct, uh, We are a ministry that is committed to producing free resources on um, a biblical and theological understanding of singleness. So we do lots of um, events. So we make all of those talks, Q&As, everything up there for free for people to, to use, to look at, to share with their pastors. Um, join that. Join the mailing list so you know what's coming up um, and get on board. We've just also released a podcast, Single Minded Stories, where each episode we hear um, the story of a different single Christian. So
2: that's great, Danny. We're so thankful that you're here and that you would talk with us. And um, it was encouraging to me, and I'm sure it will be to our listeners. Thanks for having me, guys. It's been
0: great.
1: Now it's time for. On My bookshelf, and this is the point in which we have uh, from either faculty or guests tell us uh, what's the latest thing that they've been reading, or perhaps something that's been very uh, helpful to them through the years. So, Danny Truick, what's on your bookshelf?
0: Well, at the moment, my bookshelf is my suitcase because I'm traveling through the States and I've just been at a big academic conference where I bought far too many books that I promised myself I was not going to buy. I think
1: I may have been at the same conference yeah. and made the same mistake.
0: Yeah, except I've got to carry mine around for another four weeks before I head back to Australia. So <laughs> that was a mistake. But so let me, I've got all these books that I'm waiting to read. But one book that I read a little while ago now, but still um, I found fascinating was a book from an author called Kyle Harper. It's called From Shame to Sin, and it's about, again, the early church and how Christian sexual ethics revolutionized the way that the ancient Roman Empire actually thought about uh, sexuality and our role as sexual creatures. So I I found that a fascinating read.
1: Tell me the name of the book again.
0: From Shame to Sin.
1: And the author is? Kyle Harper. Oh, That sounds Mm. fascinating. Thank you so very much. And thanks for listening. If you like our podcast, give us a rating. Uh, If you don't like our podcast, don't rate us at all. But I know you you love it, so give us a five-star rating. Have a great week.